Welcome to the Texas Insight Podcast. Texas Insight is the leader in strategic research, analysis, and reporting for the Texas Health and Human Services community. We provide timely reporting of healthcare issues and events as they occur within the legislative and regulatory branches of the Texas state government. Our team of researchers and experts delivers reporting and analysis that help you make the best decisions for your organization. If you have any questions regarding this series or would like a transcript of the discussion, please contact us at info at TXinsight.com. Welcome to episode one of the Texas Insight podcast. I'm Eric Wright, the founder of Texas Insight, and we are pleased to bring you this expanded offering. For almost 10 years now, Texas Insight has provided regular reports on what's happening in the Texas health and human services space. We focus our attention on providing information to assist healthcare businesses in Texas make better business decisions. We focus on legislative budget and policy decisions and regulatory budget and policy decisions, as well as our comprehensive advisory committee coverage. With most of our customers now working from home with limited access to information, we wanted to experiment with delivering new content through this podcast. We hope you find this podcast useful, so please give us your feedback, particularly your positive feedback. If you're interested in finding out more about Texas Insight, you can find us at www.txinsight.com. Welcome to the first episode of the Texas Insight podcast. We're pleased to have with us today Billy Milwee with Milwee & Associates Consulting. As some of you may know, Billy was the Texas Medicaid Director and Deputy Health and Human Services Executive Commissioner for a number of years. He and his firm have been engaged in Medicaid consulting on a national level since 2012. We wanted to spend some time today talking with Billy about the state Medicaid response to COVID-19 and the recent news about the cancellation by Texas HHSC of its Medicaid managed care procurements. Welcome, Billy. I hope uh, you and your family are doing well and staying safe. Well, Eric, we are, and I hope the same for you and your family and all the all the people that listen to this. Thank you, Billy. We uh, what's what's been nice about this is. Uh, my entire family of five, my wife and I and our three teenagers, were, were finally having dinners together at home again uh, for the first time in a long time. So yeah, uh, that has been nice. Definitely brings families closer together. It does. Uh, well, Billy, let's just jump right into it. Uh, I'll ask you a, a broad question to start out. Um, so how are state Medicaid programs responding in general to the COVID-19 uh, crisis and, and what's in the works for Texas? Well, you know, Eric, this has really been precedent setting. Uh, typically, Medicaid programs respond to disasters, but, you know, they're typically a, a hurricane or a fire or some, some disaster that's limited in its, in its geography and limited to a portion of the state. And this, of course, is hitting all Medicaid programs nationally. But fortunately, you know, Medicaid is a fairly flexible program, and there are some things built into Medicaid that allow for states to respond to things like this. Uh, typically, again, you see them at times of a hurricane or some other natural disaster, uh, but they're referred to as a 1135 waivers. And um, those were enabled when a, when a state is going through a disaster declaration and the president uh, signs that declaration, uh, then a state can go through the 1135 waiver process. And when President uh, Trump declared the COVID-19 situation a national emergency, that then allowed CMS to waive certain requirements in not only Medicaid, but Medicare and CHIP under what's called the uh, Section 1135 authority. 
Uh, to date, uh, 38 states, including Texas, have approved 1135 waivers. And what these waivers do broadly is they're designed to promote access to care while preserving member rights and, and responsibilities in about five or six areas. First of those is uh, Medicaid preauthorizations. You know, when you're in a disaster, the last thing you want to do is get tied up trying to get a preauthorization approved um, from your provider. So there's some ability for states to suspend that requirement. In the area of long-term services and supports, uh, it allows states to suspend pre-admission screening and annual resident assessments for 30 days. And fair hearings are protected because they know that maybe an enrollee may need more time to request a fair hearing. So that time is extended. And of course, provider enrollment's also impacted because what you want to do is allow providers to enter the program quickly. And so this uh, waivers allow providers that are out of state to provide care to a, another state's Medicaid members when they're evacuated. And it waives requirements that physicians and other healthcare professionals can be licensed in a state in which they're providing services as long as they have a license within the state in which they practice. There are some suspensions on the reporting and oversight requirements um, that may be impractical in a disaster setting. Some other administrative kind of flexibilities around submission of state plan amendments and public notice requirements for waivers. So it's really trying to get at making the process easier, particularly for the people affected by the disaster, assure uh, access to care promptly, and uh, ensure that providers can enter the program in an expedited way. Another tool that states have are 1115 waivers. So a state could pursue a waiver to, for instance, in Texas, if we wanted to cover uh, non-disabled adults on a temporary basis or, or do something like that, then there are some other waivers that states could pursue as well. So the, but the 1135 waiver is at its core designed for Medicaid programs to respond to a disaster. So Billy, as, as we've been monitoring these issues for clients, it seems that uh, the federal government's been rolling out uh, several approvals on 1135. Is that kind of a rolling process as issues come up or as the state kind of gets their arms around issues and, and knows what they want to request to the federal government? Are they submitting as it happens kind of in real time and the federal government is granting approvals through 1135 and in, in, in that form? Uh, yeah, Eric, it's, it's, it's pretty much like that. It's 1135s are kind of a, um, a menu, if you will, of saying here are the things that the federal government would be willing to approve in time of a disaster. And the state can go through that process and figure out what they want to do or any modifications they would like to do that. And they, they turn pretty quickly. You know, waivers absent a disaster, waivers can take six months to a year to process. Well, there's already 38 states now that have these 1135 waivers. And uh, they, CMS will turn them pretty quick. I know states jump on them rather quickly. Um, Texas already has theirs submitted and approved. And I think there's something on your website uh, that kind of provides an overview of the details of the, of the Texas 1135 waiver. If your listeners uh, go to Texas Insight, they can see a very good write-up of all the details around that waiver. Thanks for that plug there, Billy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so so what, uh, what kind of action specifically is the federal government taking that will benefit state Medicaid programs, I guess, outside of the 1135 or 1115 waiver process? Well, you know, the biggest thing, Eric, was the um, uh, 
H.R. 6201, the Family's First Coronavirus Response Act. Uh, and what that did, this is a big deal. This is a real big deal, really. It increased the federal matching rate by 6.2 percentage points, effective with the quarter beginning January 1st of 2020. And that runs until the end of the emergency. And here's what that means, is that, for instance, in Texas today, um, the match rate for uh, Medicaid programs is about 60-40. And that means for every dollar that Texas spends in Medicaid, the state provides 40 cents and the federal government provides 60 cents. So with this, it increases that so that now the federal government will provide 66.2 and check my math out a bit, but that's about 33.8% now that Texas has to provide. And while that may not sound like a lot, when you look at the Medicaid program in Texas, that's about $2.5 billion annually. Um, that has been provided to Texas in an enhanced FMAP rate. This was something similar done in, in 2008 when the, uh, we had the financial crisis. States had a, a bump in their FMAP rate. And the reason that the Congress and the federal government does this is they know that you're going to get hit uh, with a higher caseload than expected or higher utilization than expected. So when our legislature was appropriating monies for Medicaid uh, in 2019, they couldn't have possibly envisioned this coming. And so it's a way to, to take a little bit of the uh, pain away uh, for the, undoubtedly we're gonna see an increase in caseload in Texas and probably utilization of services as well. So it, um, it, it takes a little bit of pain away. I important to Texas though, is this not only applies to the services that members receive, but you know, we have a big reliance in Texas on uh, disproportionate share hospital payments or dish payments. Um, and that also applies to those dish payments and also applies to the uh, uh, 1115 waivers for the district payments and the uncompensated care payments made. So that, that alleviates a bit of a burden on those um, intergovernmental transfers that are used to fund uh, DISRIP and, and uncompensated care and DISH. Billy, let me ask you about the, the additional uh, match rate. You indicated about $2.5 billion in additional federal dollars coming into the state. Is, is that based on the same amount of GR that was appropriated, or does that mean that the state can use less GR from January through the end of this fiscal year? Well, um, it means the dollar is going further. So, um, Okay, so, so we keep the same amount of general revenue to match. We just get an additional $2.5 billion on the federal side. That's right. So okay. if, let's, let's just put it this way. If, let's just say in the unusual case that the coronavirus had no impact on Texas as far as caseload or utilization, then Texas, because of the change in the FMAP rate, would uh, realize over a course of a year $2.5 billion that it did not need to spend in GR. But that's unlikely to occur. So what will happen is that GR savings will be taken by the increased cost of either caseload growth or utilization increases. Okay, very good. So Billy, do you see any long-term impacts to the Medicaid program as a result of the COVID-19 crisis? Well, you know, it's, it's a bit early to tell, but here are some things that come to mind. Uh, first, I tell you, this has been like a, uh, a real uh, shot in the arm for telemedicine. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of the rules have been relaxed, so people are, are accessing telemedicine in general in the healthcare system 
in ways they have never done before. And I've got to believe that that's going to spill over into the Medicaid program and realize that that may be a, a better tool than what we had originally considered it to be on access to care and preventing uh, emergency department visits and, and those kinds of things. And so you, you, would, you think that the, uh, the rules on telemedicine will continue to be relaxed even beyond the, the COVID crisis? I think there's going to be a call to do that. You know, so many people have been exposed now to uh, the ease of, of, I had an, I, you know, I personally had an appointment with my PCP this week and it was the easiest thing in the world. You know, I didn't have to drive, take an, an hour and a half out of my day or two hours to go to the doctor's office. And it was convenient for the doctor. It was convenient for me. Uh, and, and maybe an appointment I would have had to break otherwise because of, of scheduling and those kinds of things. But it was just so easy that I think the public's going to, demand that and, and as, as you know, Medicaid is just a part of the healthcare delivery system anyway, that that would be a side benefit. Mm -hmm. and, and then another thing, I think Medicaid, um, you know, Medicaid has, has become a bit of a, a political hot potato in the past few years. And I think what this really demonstrates is another value of the Medicaid program as a arm of public health. Uh, because when you have people who are covered by um, Medicaid. They have a place of care to go to. They have a usual medical home. Uh, they can access services. They can, they can access things that right now I would really hate to be uninsured in this environment and not know where to go or how to access services. Uh, I just can't imagine that. So I think that um, Medicaid is going to gain some uh, traction as a, another tool states have in their public health arsenal. Billy, t uh, Texas in our budget process typically underfunds Medicaid during the course of the budget cycle. And what the result of that is that generally uh, the legislature comes back in in January of every odd number of year and they need to do an emergency appropriations bill to fund Medicaid through the end of the biennium. Do you have any idea what the impact will be uh, of, of the COVID-19 crisis on that process? And, and do you have an idea what the emergency appropriations bill might look like for Medicaid? Well, you know, at the end of last session, uh, Eric, the, I looked at it and had, had su suspected that we would be having about a $2 billion shortfall in that emergency appropriation request uh, to get the Medicaid program through its the current biennium. Uh, I haven't looked at any estimates since then, but I, I suspect that's probably about on track um, for the um, under underfunding from last session. With the FMAP bump, it may not increase, um, or it could potentially decrease that amount. You know, if utilization is not as high as we predicted and caseload doesn't grow, then then maybe that, that FMAP bump will help ease the shortfall from last biennium. But if you've been watching some of the projections on unemployment, um, 47 million people unemployed, and uh, you know the, the problems that we've had in the energy sector here as well, I don't think we can bank on not having a tremendous increase in our caseload growth. Mm -hmm. So it'll, it'll be interesting to, to watch it develop. Okay. Moving on to, to HHSC in general, uh, last week HHSC released some surprising news, uh, or well, surprising to some. Uh, I think some of the insiders knew this was coming for a while. Um, the Star Plus contracts that were awarded in November of 2019 were terminated, and the pending Star and CHIP procurement was canceled. What are your thoughts and insights into the reasoning for the cancellation and how things might move forward? 
Well, you know, Eric, there were a number of uh, unprecedented number of protests were filed. I believe it was eight or more um, protests. And those, those protests covered a bunch of things. And I'll kind of walk through them a little bit. Uh, first of all, the, the Star Plus RFP was issued three different times. And while they, that may not sound like a big deal, here's why it, it can be and can be perceived by, uh, as a big deal by the vendors is the same RFP was, was basically issued three times for, for different reasons. Now, vendors had responded to that RFP and then it was canceled. And so what that makes vendors believe is that HHSC was just looking for the right answer to the test and so kept reissuing the RFP. Vendors submit proposals and then they're reissued again. Now, I don't believe that's true at all. I don't think there was any malicious intent there. But it's just uh, one of the fundamentals of a RFP and a procurement process is that you have your evaluation criteria in hand before you release the RFP and you don't modify it after you see the proposal. That keeps everything above board. So that kind of principle was violated in reissuing the same RFP so many times. Um, another concern in the protest was misapplication of the published best value criteria. And you know, in Texas and in many other states, you just don't award contracts to the lowest bidder. You look at all the criteria that you're looking for, you know, things like um, the, the impact to the state of, of purchasing this, the impact on operations, uh, the success of the vendor in, in previous uh, other engagements, and all those kinds of things. And so there was allegations in the protest that HHSE did not consider that best value criteria and only went with a, a point logic. Uh, you know, this is not like you're, you're buying paper clips. If you're buying paper clips, then you can go with the vendor who had the highest number of points and probably get a pretty good paper clip. But this is a, a multi-billion dollar healthcare system that you're acquiring, and it has more to do with uh, the ability of the vendor to perform than just scoring and, and saying, well, this vendor is better because they had a tenth of a point higher score than some other vendor. And then there were some inconsistencies in evaluator scoring. And I think what a number of the vendors did is they looked at the scoring and noticed that um, uh, one evaluator might perpetually lower their score when another vendor had responded in the same way. And then some other things came out uh, as a result of HHS releasing data that suggested there was a lack of training on the evaluation team and then subjective ratings on the evaluation. So I think, you know, a shout out to Phil Wilson for uh, you know, really taking the reins on this. And it seems like that was one of the first decisions he made when he came on board. When he looked at all those um, protests and some of the allegations, and these protests were, were large. I've never seen a 150-page protest, but they really went into a lot of detail and had a lot of analysis behind it of just saying, look, we need to, we need to rethink this and need to start over on it. So that's kind of what happened when um, uh, these Star Plus and then subsequently the Star Chip uh, RP's contracts were terminated. So what's your uh, outlook, uh, Billy? Is, is, uh, are we a year away from new procurements? Are we two years, three years? What's the timeline? You know, I, I think we're at least a year away, uh, may, and maybe more, because one of, the, one of the lawsuits in this was really interesting, and it had to do with the, uh, what's called the mandatory award provision. And in Texas statute is a requirement that if a, a hospital district health plan submits a proposal, then HHSC must award the contract. And HHSC didn't do that in that case. Um, they did not award the contract to the hospital district plan. And um, that, that was heard in a, 
district court and the district court agreed with the plaintiff with the, um, um, the hospital district that HHSC should have awarded the contracts. And then they were terminated before actual contracts were awarded and that could be addressed. So it could be that the legislature may want to take that up again. Periodically, it comes up in the legislature that we need to revisit the statute about mandatory award provisions. And um, that may be something that would impede the reissuing the RFP until the legislature had an opportunity to consider that statutory requirement again. Um, but with all the errors, and, and as big as this is, this is a huge effort to undertake a procurement of this size. Um, these managed care procurements are, in terms of dollars, as big as some countries' uh, gross domestic product. I mean, we're talking $20 billion. It's it's huge effort. So it would make sense for them to uh, slow it down a bit, think about what they really are purchasing, and if this is the how they want to move forward. So I would say at least a year, and potentially not see something until 2021, if the legislature indeed wants to revisit a few things about the design of the current program. Well, I was going to say, given that the legislature meets again next January, I would think the legislature would want to have some kind of say yeah. on the process. So so all managed care contracts that are currently in existence uh, will be extended for an indefinite time period. Is that the understanding? Uh, that, that's Yes, they would have to extend the current contracts. And then if you, let's say, if you don't have a procurement out until after next legislative session, that would be, let's say you got a, an RP out in September of 21, then you're probably looking at the current contracts being in place until 2022 or so, because these are not uh, real fast procurements. They take a huge effort. So once a RP is published, uh, you're talking a year at least down the road before you see contracts awarded. That's good information, Billy. Well, you just uh, you just alluded to Phil Wilson in, in your response uh, on the managed care contracts, and there there's certainly been a lot of changes at HHSC uh, with the recent departure of Commissioner Phillips, the announcement, uh, the retirement of the Medicaid director Stephanie Muth. Uh, a lot of us have known Phil for a long time now. He's he's been in Texas government for a long time. Worked for Governor Perry. Uh, was Secretary of State, uh, ran TxDOT. He's kind of been a fixer. Um, what do you expect uh, of his leadership style and what kind of changes will he bring to HHSC? Well, you know, so far um, it's really been refreshing with uh, uh, Phil Wilson there. You know, we had the quick decision on the Star Plus and Star Chip contracts, uh, delay after delay after delay, and then finally a decision was made. So that was refreshing to see that. And then we've seen some organizational changes. You know, recently, um, Trey Wood was moved to be the chief financial officer and a direct report to the executive commissioner. So it, it looks like uh, from the external view that, that he's moving quickly to, to put some things in place to set the ship right. Um, you know, and it's, it's always tough when you lose so much corporate experience. Like Stephanie Muth has been around HHSC a long, long time. Uh, she brings with her a lot of experience, as as many, many others do, and her, her departure will certainly be missed. But there are... Well, well, they'll be looking for a new Medicaid director. you have any interest in coming back? Um, well, there are a lot of qualified people there that should be given <laughs> the opportunity to excel at these leadership opportunities. <laughs> um, okay. Stephanie Stevens is uh, is there and uh, you know is is really well well respected well thought of. Emily Zalkowski uh, is there and and well respected, well rounded, 
right person. Um, Victoria Grady has done a great job in rate analysis. So there, there are a number of people there. But, you know, every time this happens, uh, and it, it's happened increasingly over the last four or five years, it just see a, a migration of corporate knowledge leaving. And so I'm really uh, hopeful that, that they can retain the good people that they have, recruit a good uh, executive commissioner, Medicaid director that really not only understand healthcare, but understand Texas, the unique needs that we have here. Excellent. Well, Billy, that's all we have for today. I want to thank you for your time. Um, it's certainly a lot to consider. Uh, Billy, if any of our viewers want to contact you uh, for any additional information, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, well, you can call me. My number is 512-393-4018 or email at billy at millweconsulting.com. Excellent. Well, Thanks again, Billy, and uh, we look forward to having you on again soon. Yeah, thank you very much, Eric. Best to you and your family. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.